it is harder to be a leader today than at any other time that I that I've been around. That's because the general context within which leaders operate has become so disruptive, uncertain, complex, and all those other terms that center around the idea of being in a VUCA world. And the impulse uh, in that environment too often that I've been able to observe is that leaders take the ready, fire, aim approach. In other words, they jump to action. They jump to action very, very quickly because they think that's where value gets created. One of the things that I would encourage is for folks not to act right away, but to reflect. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the past episode, we talked to Vikrant Sharia, a young entrepreneur who is still in the middle of his leadership journey. Vikrant started a company that helps aspiring authors write, publish, and market their own books. In our conversation, Vikrant talked about how he scaled the business from a solopreneur to hiring 50 employees. He talks about his philosophy in hiring and managing his team and some of the mistakes that he made along the way. He also talked about the key elements that an author should keep in mind when they're set out to write a book. He talked about how a book should be marketed and also how a book can be used to raise somebody's profile in their chosen business sphere. Today, we have a two-part episode. We talked to Harvey Seifter and Fred Mandel. Harvey and Fred have started Creating Futures That Work, a company that uses creative arts and teaching specifically creative arts to people as a way to foster and develop innovation and the ability to work with others. Harvey is a trained musician who started his career in the arts, and he was the CEO of Orpheus, an orchestra that is famous because it's a conductorless orchestra. It was in his work as a CEO that he observed the parallels between the creative process and how organizational decisions are made. And that led to over 10 years of study and research on how innovation can be fostered by teaching people creative skills. And this research was funded by the National Science Foundation. Fred was the COO of uh, American Express Financial Advisors, and he also had a passion for art. So. When he left American Express, he merged those passions and he started training leaders and CEOs in global Fortune 100 companies on how to develop organizational creativity. And he's also the author of a really well-known and popular class that he taught at Sloan MIT. So in the first part of our episode, we focused on their career as leaders, how they developed as leaders and the lessons that they learned. In the second part of the episode, which will be published at the same time, so you can listen to it right away, we will focus on specifically the work that they're doing right now, the instruments that they have developed to assess people's ability to innovate and collaborate, and how they're using a curriculum that specifically focuses on creating the arts to develop better creativity and better leadership. Enjoy. Okay, I am here with Fred Mendel and Harvey Seifter, the two co-founders of Futures at Work, a great program that teaches arts-based experiential learning. And in full disclosure, I was one of the first eight people that went to the program and certified in their approach. But what I want to start our conversation out today with is before they started this program, they actually have very significant leadership journeys themselves. So first of all, Harvey and Fred, great to see you again. Same here. 
Thanks, Dina. It's great to be here. Yeah. And Fred, why don't we start with you? You know, tell our listeners your journey, your career, and what sort of brought you here. Sure. So I started out as an academic, got a PhD in history, and uh, but pretty quickly learned that I did not enjoy scholarship. I enjoyed creating things more than researching things. So I made a pretty rapid shift into financial services. Over a period of time, I had a uh, significant 21 plus year career at American Express as a senior executive. I ran multiple businesses for them, including marketing, running an investment firm for them, running all their business markets and so forth. So that was a multiple careers within a single career within a single organization. And that was a wonderful part of the journey. Beginning toward the end of that journey, I got interested in pursuing a interest, a longstanding interest in art and art making. So I stepped away from the corporate world in 2001 to pursue that interest. And uh, very quickly, I began to see parallels between the process of making art and the process of building an enterprise, seeing parallels between the skills of creativity and the skills of leadership. So I began to put together some programs, and that led to uh, a relationship with uh, Harvey. I'm going to pause there. I don't want to go too far because I think we're going to come back to that subject in a little bit. Yeah, so let's get to... Actually, Harvey, what is your story? <laughs> Great, thanks, Dina. So my journey actually led in almost the uh, opposite direction to Fred's, in that I started as an artist, and uh, I learned to read music before I learned to read English. I was a classically trained violinist. As a kid, making music, making art, and, uh, and actually scientific research were my passions. And uh, in college, I started hanging out with the rubber crowd, so I did theater. And so I launched my career in music, but also in theater, director, as a producer, as a conductor, and uh, spent uh, about 15 years producing uh, new plays on and off Broadway and uh, working around the world. And uh, in the process of doing that, I had a lot of different kinds of experiences. And one of them one day led me to a job with a remarkable orchestra called Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. So Orpheus is, in addition to being a really amazing orchestra, it's the only orchestra in the world that rehearses and records and performs all of its work without a conductor. And in the process of working with Orpheus, I began to learn a tremendous amount. And uh, I began to realize just how powerful the way that Orpheus had developed and working could be in an era when collaboration was becoming increasingly important when the IT revolution was smashing all, out all of these layers of middle management, pushing responsibility down into the hands of people doing work, and began to feel that there were really powerful lessons that could be learned from that. So I began exploring with Orpheus ways in which we might explore that learning and uh, bring it to the business world. And we started with a small laboratory in the City University. It grew to a uh, we actually set up a management consultancy so that after a few years, we began uh, touring the world, doing concerts at night and working with Fortune 500s by day. As we grew from there, we began to realize that, that there were some incredibly powerful things to be learned, not only specifically from Orpheus and its way of working, but more broadly from theater, from music, from dance, from the visual arts, from all art forms that could apply to a pretty broad range of human experience. And so formed something called Creativity Connection, 
in partnership with Americans for the Arts, eventually also formed an organization called the Art of Science Learning in partnership with the National Science Foundation. And over the past couple of decades, have done a tremendous amount of work with all kinds of organizations in developing these kinds of collaborations and using them to spark learning uh, and innovation in many different types of settings. That is fabulous. You know, both of you, we're going to get to how and when we met a little later, but what I'm interested is in, in your first part of the journey, you both had roles as leaders of teams and, and, and as you grew up, what were some of the critical moments as you were forming in leaders and like where you started having an insight on the type of leader that you wanted to be? For me, theater was an incredible laboratory into all kinds of things, but especially into leadership. The whole process of bringing a bunch of people together and taking a script and exploring it and understanding the motivations of different characters and at the same time exploring your own motivations and what how you could find ways of working together that was a constant set of opportunities and challenges and learning experiences and at times train wrecks i did 500 plays in the first part of my career and each one of those was just rich with learning about leadership I got to experience myself fail over and over and over again and got to see other people succeed and fail and together picking each other up and sometimes uh, dusting off our bruises and going on to what comes next. So that was probably the single crucible that formed a lot of my understanding. I love the word crucible because I do think that forming your leadership character does have to go through a crucible, one of aspiration, trying different things, getting knocked knocked off your block, and then kind of bouncing back, but bouncing back with renewed purpose. So for me, I think it was an ever-evolving process, but it got crystallized when I had the opportunity to form and work with different teams. So over my career, I was responsible for different businesses. Each of them had different teams reporting to me. At one point, I had about five or six different businesses reporting to me. And what I tried to do at the beginning of my relationship with a team, whether it was a newly formed team or an intact existing team, was share with them my aspiration that the work that we do together as a team would be the very best work experience they'd ever had. That was my aspiration for them and for us. And then I would, in turn, ask the question, what do we need to do as a team in order to realize that aspiration, assuming you share in that? And then we'd have a very rich, meaningful, concrete conversation about what, about values, about behaviors, about communication, about mission, that would all be a process of co-creating through the team so that everyone bought into it from the very beginning. It also provided the opportunity for us to communicate directly with each other in terms of when we were living up to that aspiration and when we were not living up to it. So in the crucible of team formation, I got a huge amount of personal satisfaction. And that's when I realized this is what I wanted to do. And so one follow-up question to Fred, because something that you know, one of the big transitions that you make as a leader 
is when you're going from managing a team where you have visibility into everybody, you know, like a team of 50, 30, you know, you, you have your direct reports, but you also kind of maybe know the faces of the every, of everybody else. But, you know, when you transition from that to, as you mentioned, that you ran five different business units, and obviously in that case, you didn't know everybody on the team. What are some of the steps that a leader in that situation can take from your experience to kind of like making sure that mission of the shared vision, you know, what is the best experience for everybody on the team gets communicated down the path? Well, in principle, my experience is that you can't over communicate. So it's not simply that you communicate a message, but that you communicate it constantly and that you focus on a few themes and make those themes the thing that you're communicating. So that's one piece of it. But even before that, I think you need alignment among your senior leadership group. So among the the team that reported to me, my direct reports, we'd spend a bunch of time in terms of alignment. And to me, alignment is not only agreeing to the, the values we want to achieve and the goals we want to achieve it and generally how we're going to do it, But it means that we are able to articulate that alignment to those who report to us. So there's this cascading effect. If you don't have that alignment from the very beginning and there's 80% alignment and 80% communication at the next level, if that 80% follows, then it's a 64% effectiveness and so on down the line. And by the time you get down to different layers in the organization, it's very loosey-goosey and it's not clear. So that's one piece of it. I would say alignment, communication. And the third is I think you need to get down into the uh, organization with people through skip lunches, informal lunches, visits, randomly just giving a phone call to someone in the organization saying, I just wanted to check in with you, see how it's going from where you sit, how are we doing, etc. So that people feel that they've got access to you. And I think, so those are some of the practices that I try to live every day. To add one or two points to to that, my perspective on leading teams and different parts of an organization in different countries and far-flung operations, a lot of it has to do with empowerment and to the extent that the alignment actually grows, not just from the clarity of communication, which is absolutely essential, but actually grows out of the investment in the choices being made, the decisions and the ownership and the vision. So one of the things that, one of the deepest leadership lessons that I learned as being the CEO of a multi-leadered organization with Orpheus was that as CEO, I had ultimate responsibility for any and every decision in the organization. And if I wanted to actually measure my effectiveness, I could do it in inverse proportion to the number of decisions that I actually made. So if people are actually empowered to make those decisions, if they share and contribute to the expression of that vision in doing it, that becomes a very, very powerful thing. The other thing that goes with that, and they kind of go hand in glove, is this question of authenticity. One of the worst things that I ever did as a leader was when I began to explore working with the Orpheus process as a teaching tool. I had studied it, I had a book about it, I'd spent a lot of time with So I decided that since I had done all of that, I would put that in the service of what we were doing by scripting the entire thing. 
So what I successfully did is, of course, killed off all of the spontaneity, all of the joy, all of the engagement of all the creative people who actually invented this process and, and had discovered things about it, that, and instead substituted my own voice, my own perspectives, which didn't even come through in that construct either. So that idea allowing for, in the moment, opportunity and possibility of being spontaneous and being trusting of yourself and, and, and others, I think it's also really kind of a critical thing. And that ties directly back to this question of what's an authentic experience and what's an authentic experience of leading and following. Yeah, so I, I'm glad you brought up the Orpheus Orchestra because I'm fascinated by the idea of a conductorless orchestra and the idea that you're in a group of equals, but equals with very different perspectives because people have different musical expectations in an orchestra. They have different level of skills without going through the process that you mentioned of trying to codify it and then killing it. <laughs> Take me a little bit to like the process when you were like in it and starting to realize that this creative process had a parallel to what you were doing as CEO. What were some of the insights and some of the aha moments? Sure. Well, one of the first things that you come to realize pretty quickly when you're in any kind of a musical ensemble, and especially a conductorless orchestra, is that it doesn't work if everybody actually isn't a leader. So people sometimes would look at Orpheus and say, oh, the conductorless orchestra, their model is a leaderless model. And I said, no, it's, it's not a leaderless model. It's, it's a multi-leader model. It's actually a model where everybody is a leader sometimes. And of course, the kind of quick realization that if everybody's a leader, then everybody's also a follower sometimes. So that process of learning to define my own leadership as sometimes following, sometimes leading, and maybe my particular role as a CEO is to sort of choreograph that a bit uh, so as to create some awareness of what's a good way to figure out who's going to lead at a given moment and how do we exchange signals around following those are really kind of key skills that they they're embodied in the orchestra experience but they're front and center for any leader who's working with any team anywhere so that was really kind of the first one the other really big thing that or a couple of other big things that i took away one is that one of the things that orpheus did the best was to have good confidence not to say that there weren't sometimes some bad conflicts, but by and large, when it came to the work itself, the music, the conflicts were good ones, the kind of conflicts you want to have. We, all of us, uh, you know, at times want to avoid conflict because that seems like a positive thing to do, and it is. But in the process, there's always a risk of kind of watering down what we do, of missing the creative opportunity, of leaving the best new ideas on the cutting room floor, never having really been looked or tried. So this whole idea of iteration, which is so at the key of so much innovation and, and so much agile work and so much that we do in business actually is, is tied directly into this. If we can't try things and experiment with them, if we can't get honest feedback quickly in real time and be prepared to actually duke it out with, over the ideas, over the substance of the thing, we're going to lose an opportunity to really achieve excellence and greatness. So one of the hardest things in translating all of this into business is often overcoming something that we 
tended to culturally learn as a business society. And that is that you actually are helping people when you give them clear and direct feedback. And the best way to give feedback is to answer questions honestly, sincerely, directly, as helpfully as you can. And one of the worst ways to do it is to answer a question with, with a question and deflect the whole thing. Yeah, that, that's a, a very good point. And I think, interesting, some, we'll talk about how that came into play in our work together. I have one more quick question. This is more as a music fan or a geek. And it is, I think, for the people who are listening here who are not, you know, deep music expert or only casual listeners, there are a lot of decisions that go into playing a piece of music. It's not just take the, you know, the written music there because people think of classical music. It's all written, but there's a lot of big decisions that go into an execution. So what are some of the examples of the experimentation as to how, you know, what are some of the key decisions, first of all, so that our, our listeners can understand the, the, the level of depth and complexity that it takes? And then what are some of the examples of how you would resolve some of that within a conductorless model? So we all have, when, when we're playing music, classical music, we all have the score in front of us, our parts. And that tells us certain things, and, but there's a whole bunch of things it doesn't tell us. One of the things that's kind of different about Orpheus is that this is an orchestra where everybody had not only their part in front of them, but the full score. So they could understand their part from the very beginning not just as the thing that they were doing when they came to work, but how it stood in relationship to what everybody else in that orchestra on that stage was doing at the same moment. So maybe the music says to play it loud, but how loud is loud? Maybe it says to play it fast. What does that mean? Maybe often you see in, in a, an instruction that a composer gives at a certain point to play it with feeling. Okay, that's cool. But what kind of feeling? And how do we know it when we feel it? So all of those things kind of have to be worked out in the moment. One of the things that we often do to illustrate the point is to, we did a lot of work over the years with GE up at Crotonville, working with a string quartet, which we actually had in residence there. And we did that to look at how people fine-tune their collaboration and how really extraordinarily gifted, talented, creative professionals find these ways of working together and to collaborate with trust and mutual respect and, and, and empathy, but also to do it in very quick and efficient ways and achieve superb results. So one of the things that happens is that if you take a piece of music, you can try it one way and people think that that's great, but then we would also then often say, okay, in this piece, the cello plays first. So we're going to give the cello the opportunity to start the piece the way that the cellist would like to today. It may not be what we've rehearsed before, but let's start there and see what happens. And quickly out of that would grow a performance. The music was beautiful, but it would sound entirely different because the cellist decided to play it differently. The differences can be dramatic. And if you can't find a good way of working it out, that's also pretty dramatic. It sounds pretty bad. It's easy to make the music sound bad. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm thinking about the process of, you know, sort of working out how the piece is going to be performed and how that happens behind closed doors. And then the moment that the orchestra is performing in front of an audience, all these decisions have been made. And Fred, there's a really interesting parallel in services where, and you, know, and you uh, 
in the financial service businesses that you have uh, overseen, there were some that were client facing, right? And oftentimes in a service relationship, the team needs to figure out which recommendation they're going to make to the clients. And, and there are differences that need to be worked out in the background. I'm wondering if you have examples, you know, since we talked about the importance of conflict resolution and the transition between conflict resolution and presenting things to clients, examples that come from your work um, with American Express that you could share with us. That's a great question. So the financial services industry has evolved significantly over a period of time. And it has moved, I believe, from more of a product push orientation to more of a meeting the client needs orientation. And that expresses itself through a broader array of products and services that uh, that individuals can buy. It also is reflected through the various technology capabilities that the individual consumer can access in order to self-empower himself or herself to be educated and to make decisions and so forth. So there has been, I believe, a positive shift in the relationship between the financial services providers and the consumer. The consumer today is much more empowered. But what unifies that whole thing is the intermediary of the individual advisor or professional that is in relationship to the consumer trying to help him or her make good, thoughtful decisions about how to deploy, utilize their finances in relationship to their goals and objectives. And sometimes to kind of draw a parallel between what Harvey said in terms of the beneficial aspects of conflict and the professional, the idea here, and this also draws on authenticity, because the critical personal aspect of the relationship between the advisor and the consumer is one of authenticity. And what that basically means is the advisor needs to talk truth to the consumer. And that expresses itself in terms of full disclosure relative to fees and structures and that sort of thing. But it also means to talk truth and reality to the consumer in terms of the relationship between their ability to achieve their goals and objectives and their current behaviors. And if there is a disconnect there, then the advisor needs to bring that to the consumer's attention. Quick example, in my early days, I was had the role of a financial advisor, worked with a client. They had a goal of saving for their child's uh, education and retirement. And it was very clear pretty quickly that they were spending a lot of extra money. And I they essentially confronted uh, the client and brought these behaviors to their attention and said, listen, I cannot be your advisor unless you adapt your behaviors in alignment with your goals and objectives. And so we put together some programs. They were on track. He had a move. So I could no longer be his advisor. Nine years later, I get a phone call from him. And he said, I kept your card all of these years because in all of my time working with financial professionals, you're the only one who spoke the truth to me and led to a a shift in behavior. So that comes back to the primacy of relationship, the primacy of authenticity. And as a financial professional, 
how do you bring value to that client relationship? That's great. I think this is a good point sort of to maybe provide some tips to our listeners. And given that you both have highlighted the the value and the power of, you know, use the term conflict, but I really think it's more bringing the, you know, bringing the issues to the forefront, if you will, and not being afraid to face them. What are a couple of tips that you would give to an executive or a manager or like to make sure that a good, healthy practice of bringing the issues to the surface and solving them with the team is sort of currently implemented? One of the things that we can do as leaders is we can kind of frame things and tee them up a little bit. And one of the most important ways we can do that is to focus on problems before focusing on solutions and helping people to understand the distinction between the two of them and making sure that the team has actually dug deeply into and clarified and are aligned around some understanding of what the actual problem that the team is facing might be or where the opportunity might lie. And that doesn't necessarily happen in a moment or a single meeting, but it's incredibly important. So once you've done that, it's also, I think, really important to encourage teams to experiment, but before experimenting, to explore. So exploring and learning are one of the great things that teams can do. It's a, and I, I see that as the foundation of really all innovation. And that means internal exploring within the team itself, but also reaching out and looking at the world around them. It also then means the kind of honest feedback in the moment that allows you to go through a lot of possibilities and, uh, and use them to iterate and to make it better. So one of the ways to do that is to put front and center the question of if I'm on a team and I'm coming up with some ideas that, that we've developed, I also probably know what's kind of half-baked in those ideas, what might be better, what should be questioned and challenged. Our default mode is often if I'm presenting my team's ideas, of course, what I really want to do is show how great they are and how much work we've done, and what we put into it, why this is the way to go. And that's all important. And yet at the same time, every time that you present an idea, you have tremendous opportunities to learn more and that ultimately can make it better. And so that's where feedback comes in because feedback is in its most powerful when the person who is getting the feedback is actually asking for it. And that ask is more powerful if it's authentic, if it's really coming from a place of, I know that we haven't quite figured this part of it out, or I just have a sense that there's, there's more to this picture than, than we're seeing here. And what do you suggest? So taking that kind of responsibility and then the responsibility on the part of everybody else to play their role to actually give the feedback. And then finally, this mindset of flexibility, which comes in, is incredibly important. You want to be focused on what you're trying to achieve, but not the steps that you've taken so far to achieve it. You know, I think it is harder to be a leader today than at any other time that, I, that I've been around. And that's because the general context within which leaders operate has become so disruptive, uncertain, complex, and all those other terms that center around the idea of being in a VUCA world. So I think it's really, really tough. And the impulse in that environment 
too often that I've been able to observe is that leaders take the ready, fire, aim approach. In other words, they jump to action. They jump to action very, very quickly because they think that's where value gets created. So one of the things that I would encourage is for folks not to act right away, but to reflect. And from a leadership perspective, I would suggest that there are some questions they want to ask themselves. You know, so what is needed in this moment? What is important? From a personal perspective, I mean, what contribution do I wish to make? Why do I want to do this? Because the way in which you respond to those questions ends up building up a store of resilience that you're going to have to draw on because you're going to bump into all kinds of roadblocks and disappointments and failures along the way. So if you have, if you have clarity about uh, to those questions based upon your reflection, I think that puts you in a stronger position. The other thing I would say is in today's world, since things are happening so quickly, the ability to be in the job and out of the job almost simultaneously provides perspective. By in the job, I mean you're doing your tasks, you're working toward your goals and objectives. By being out of the job, I mean you're stepping back from that process and you're reflecting. Am I doing the right things? Are we doing the right things? What are my assumptions? Are those assumptions still true? And so forth. So your ability or flexibility to be in and out at the same time will build your leadership capacity. And then from a very practical perspective, and I see that because people get inundated with so much from a leadership perspective, I mean, it's an onslaught of the unexpected, that number one, prioritize what's really important. And number two, organize your work, your thinking and activities around your priorities. It sounds simple and it is, but it's amazing how often people get sucked into the vortex of change and uncertainty and all those other things. And they kind of lose their moorings and say, what do I need to be doing now? Well, that's a function of what is your priority. Now, so what I was saying, what is fascinating hearing your two statements is if I think about the training that I received in corporate America in the 90s and the 2000s, each one of you started with a statement that is the exact opposite of what I was trained as, you know, as a junior person coming up on Wall Street and then, you know, making my way through consulting, advertising agencies. The first thing is I was always told by the people I was reporting to, do not come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution. And Harvey, you said, don't get to the solution really quickly. First, figure out what is the problem. Take the time to figure out what is the problem. And then the second thing that I always had was always told to me is like, have a bias for action. And Fred, your advice is, yeah, action is important, but take a beat, take a breath, think about what you want to do before you act. Yes. So I think this is very valuable advice for our listeners. You know, I was really fascinated when I read your guide, actually, to how you like to proceed in these. And the questions about kind of keywords or buzzwords of our time. And I think this relates to this conversation pretty powerfully. So one of the things that you mentioned in there is that, you know, sort of we're all focused on being disruptors. And the interesting thing is we're all focused on being disruptors. And yet we don't lack for disruption in the world and in, in our lives and in most of the situations that we're in. So yes, there are places that are seemingly immune to those things that do need disruption. 
but maybe that's not nearly as important to put front and center as it was some years ago. And I look at some of the other phrases that are out there. Going digital, is that really the challenge of the world today, or is going human the challenge of the world today in an increasingly digital world? And, you know, and so on. So it's, it's I think, very interesting to, when we look at, at the, the ways that we we were trained ourselves and the people that we work with are trained and a lot of the, the truisms that are around in the business world, how many of them actually would yield much more insight if we stood them on their head or cut them in half. So let me jump in with a couple of <laughs> reactions also, because uh, I thought that, that was a, a wonderful question that you posed there, Dino. And that is, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been in, conversations I've been in, where the phrase new normal comes up and how preoccupied people are with understanding and arriving at a new normal. Well, I think that's fruitless. I think waiting for the new normal is like waiting for Godot. It's never going to arrive. The reality is no normal is the new normal. So the challenge for leaders today is not to discern and figure out the new normal, but it is how do I navigate the no normal? How do I learn to navigate the rapids and stay afloat and create value within that kind of constantly changing environment? So that's that's one thought. The other is related to thinking outside the box. How many times, you know, we got to think outside the box. Well, no, we live in boxes. For one fact, we live in the human box. And solutions really become creative when we understand the box and bring fresh eyes to the way we look at what's in the box. And that leads to breakthrough, not to automatically create no boundaries, because no boundaries is so diffuse that it becomes confusing. And there's a great deal of research that backs that up cognitive level on the neuroscience level, that creativity is a boundary phenomenon in a lot of ways. And the box can be a spur to incredibly creative. Yeah, that is totally true. It reminds me of a musical example. Peter Gabriel, for a couple of his records, had a rule that the drummer could not use cymbals. And that forced the drummer to make choices that are very different than the ones that would be available when you have the full kit. I also want to reconnect for a second to something that Fred said about the new normal. And what I find fascinating is that in the third episode of the podcast, I interviewed Rashad Tabakawala, and also he had the new normal as an expression that he didn't like and actually says that we're living in the era of the new strange. So I am honored that the two of you have read the full interview guide that I sent out and have actually managed to reconnect my question about business expression and jargon that drives you crazy to actually a very meaningful part of the conversation. And so I think this is a good point to stop this portion of the conversation and go on to actually talk about your work in connecting creativity to teach leadership and innovation skills. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends and please talk about it in social media. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, GoodPod, or a platform that allows you to leave a review, please do. And wherever you're listening, make also sure that you are subscribed to the show so that when new episodes get released, you find out immediately. 
If you enjoyed this episode specifically, go and listen to part two, where Fred and Harvey talk about arts-based experiential learning. They cover all the research that they did to develop their assessment tool that helps organizations find out people's ability to innovate. And also they talk about the curriculum that they developed that can be used to teach arts and use the teaching of arts to improve people's ability to innovate. You can find Fred and Harvey on LinkedIn. And you can also follow them on their website, futuresthatwork.com or artsofsciencelearning.org. Finally, the episode was recorded on Squadcast.fm. It was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional editing by Fullcast. The music that you're hearing is composed, arranged, and produced by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played drums and keyboards, with guitars by Tony Savarino and bass by Jesse Williams. Those of you who are fans of the show and always listen until the end know that traditionally, at the end of every episode, I play a song by Susan Cattaneo. This episode is a two-part episode, and so the song will be at the end of part two. So go listen to part two. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for liking the show.